The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFond. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Joining me, not one, not two, but three guests this week. Up first from, or formerly, of the Eagles, it is Don Felder talking about the REO Speedwagon Sticks United We Rock Tour, plus writing Hotel California and a whole bunch of other stuff. On the second side, we come back with George Thorogood. He is having a party of one, or certainly that is the name of his new album. And then we finish with Mike Skill of the Romantics. They are on their 40th anniversary tour. But first, before we get to all that fun stuff, I have on the line with me Joshua Toomey of the Talk Toomey Show. He's got his own show, formerly of, was it Primer 55? Is that it, Yes, sir. Yes, and uh, you know, listen, I've been talking at the beginning of every show with different guests. We, We did band versus brand a couple of weeks ago. On the uh, last episode, we talked about our bars killing the live music scene. But there's something here that I find interesting. There's a record store or a record chain in Canada called Sunrise Records. And uh, a few years ago, they were five stores. And this 30-year-old guy, 30-something guy called Doug Putman, came in, bought it over, and has been expanding and expanding and expanding More than 50 stores opened up uh, by the end of 2017, hoping to have 85 stores. They bought out the HMV uh, chain, which in Canada had gone bankrupt. Now, if you've gone anywhere in Europe, you know, the UK especially, you have seen HMV stores for the last 30 years. In fact, that is where I bought my Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2 albums when they came out back in... I guess 91, 92 was it? So the chain's been around a long time, went bankrupt. And this guy bought it all up and is opening and opening and opening. In fact, 12 million CDs were sold in Canada, over $100 plus million in retail sales, which is not bad. Now, keeping in mind, Canada is not like the United States. You know, 12 million CDs sold with our population, you know, hovering around 25 to 30 million, you're, you're looking roughly at one CD sold to every two Canadians. Now, if you were to extend that into the U.S., that would be almost 200 million CDs sold to, you know, your 400 million Americans. So that's pretty good. Everybody is saying that physical product is dead. Is, is, are you surprised by these stats and these numbers and how well this record company is doing? But yeah, it's just crazy seeing the amount of CDs sold, you know, per per Canadian up there is, uh, you know, the, the, the two for one up there. And that would be amazing to see in the States. And, you know, with with this article where, where you get into it, you know, it says there's a lot of millennials going in and buying uh, the classic rock and things like that. And and when you go into, uh, you know, go into a Target or go into uh, a Best Buy, you know, you're not really seeing that uh, that, that classic rock cat- uh, catalog uh, shown out there to, to people for people to buy. So it's it's a it's it's great to see that someone is taking the reins of the CD store in Canada and kind of showing maybe what America what could be done. 
Yeah, and maybe the rest of the world also. So they're they're talking about uh, you know, and Sunrise Records is specializing specializing in what they call deep catalogs. So you're looking at bands that are like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, uh, Queen, Pink Floyd, Styx, which you know we're going to talk uh, to Tommy Shaw next week, Journey, and all. So you're looking at all these catalog bands, and, and you're right. When you go into a Best Buy or an FYI, FYE, I guess they're called in the States, you see a lot of Beyonce and a lot of the new bands or new artists, but you don't see a lot of these older things. And I know for myself, I like to buy those deeper albums, those deeper cuts and those deeper tracks. So I, I can't go into an HMV, even though, come on especially now that they're closed, but I couldn't go into a physical location and buy that stuff because it just wasn't there for me. So I would have to go to Amazon and make those purchases. And the other thing is the fans of Beyonce and some of the newer artists, well, they're not going into the brick and mortar stores either because they would rather just get it on Spotify or on Apple Music. or So it made sense that these stores were, were sort of failing and not achieving their full potential. So perhaps maybe it's not that fans don't want to buy CDs or fans don't want to buy vinyl. Perhaps it's just the stores that were selling them the wrong CDs and the wrong vinyls, right? Is that, is that what we're gathering here from this, from this article and, and what's happening up in here in Canada? Well, what I'm seeing too is what you were saying about, you know, the classic rock and, and the, the article states that millennials are going in and buying the classic rock, buying what their parents listen to. So I'm almost wondering if it's part of like a nostalgia type thing for the for the kids, you know, for the kids to go in and like, oh, this is what my parents did. They went in and bought a physical album. And the article states that 70% of the catalog in the stores is, uh, you know, anywhere between a year and a half to three years old or older. So it's not necessarily, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're not selling a ton of, like you said, Beyonce. They probably sold a bunch of Adele because Adele sold a bunch of CDs. But as for, you know, just the, just, just, you know, new hip hop or, or new, uh, new rock and roll 21 pilots type stuff, they're probably not seeing that kind of return. And, and when you go into, uh, in the States here, you go into a Best Buy or, or Target or whatnot, you're getting their CD selection is so small that it's, and it's so geared towards, you know, the, the new Beyonce's, like you said, is geared towards all that. So, you know, people are not buying the albums they want. But the one thing that I do know, and I kind of wonder how Walmart's doing with the $5 bin they have with, you know, the best of Blue Oyster Cult and, and Skid Row's first album, things like that. Because every time I go in there, I walk by that CD bin and it seems like the, the selection is getting better and better. And, and I kind of wonder how many uh, $5 CDs they're going through. Yeah, and, and, and you know, that's another thing. People are saying, well, there's this resurgence in vinyl, 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 vinyl. But you also look at what's being sold in vinyl, and again, it's those deep catalog tracks. I mean, people are going out and buying Pink Floyd The Wall on vinyl. They're buying Kiss Whatever on vinyl. They're not buying the new Katy Perry on vinyl. So, you know, maybe it's not that physical formats are dying or have died. I, I will continue to say that maybe it's just the wrong things that are being put on those formats. Maybe that's why people are not trying, not buying it or not interested. And, and as far as physical format, are you a CD guy or are you a sort of a, a Spotify guy? I've turned into a Spotify guy over, over time because it's just so convenient to, especially, you know, listening to podcasts such as yours and you hear a guest that you may not be familiar with their catalog and bam, you know, you can immediately go over and, and, uh, you know, hear every album you want to. And, and, uh, you know, I, I went on a, a road trip the other day, and by the time we got to our two-hour destination, 
we had flown through so many different albums that would have been impossible, you know, just uh, just five years ago. So it was, it's crazy what Spotify can do. Yeah, listen, I'm I'm a bit of both. I like Spotify to go check out an album, but I check it out with the purpose of wanting to buy it in physical format. It drives me crazy to not have physical format. And I believe it was Alice Cooper, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he, he said that he's not into the digital download because he doesn't like to own air. And, and I'm one of those because you get a computer crash or you get a whatever, or you, you forget your password, and all of a sudden your collection doesn't exist anymore. And part of how I discovered music was l- borrowing a CD or a cassette from a friend, uh, raiding my brother's collection. And with the digital format, I mean, unless somebody grabs your phone, it, it just it doesn't get shared. It, you lose that sort of, hey, I mean, that's how I discovered Kiss, right? I mean, I was flipping through my bro- my brother's records. So without that ability, I probably never would have been a Kiss fan. So I, I'm not into owning air. I'm not, I'm not into all that stuff. But it is very convenient to just go pick up a song and say, hey, wow, uh, the new River Dogs album, California, is out. Oh, maybe I should go check out what they did in the past. Oh, great. It's, love it. Let me go buy it, you know, and uh, there you go. But uh, Joshua, great pleasure having you here. And uh, I'm, I'm one to say let's hope that a physical format stays with us and let's hope that the Sunrise record um, has achieves greater success and hopefully uh, can bring it down to the States or maybe an American company can come up with something of equal importance. Uh, so there you go. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you, Mitch. And I will be right back with Don Felder, formerly of the Eagles and writer of Hotel California. I'm sure you've heard of it. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. A big thank you to Joshua for that interesting chat about uh, Sunrise Records. But now, without further ado, a man who needs no introduction, formerly of the Eagles, writer of Hotel California, the one, the only, Don Felder. We are speaking with guitarist Don Felder, currently on tour with Styx and REO Speedwagon on the United We Rock Summer Tour uh, Don, a great pleasure to uh, to speak with you. Oh, it's really fun to be on the radio with you, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, here's the thing that I find uh, difficult in speaking with someone like you is that you've had such a storied career that for every you know five questions I ask, I'm going to be missing about 50. So let's just start with this tour and the package and just talk to me about working with the Sticks guys because you've obviously been on tour with them uh, in the past. Um, Talk to me about this package. Well, you know, it's a really an amazingly family-oriented package in that we've all known each other really for decades and walked, worked together and toured together and played together and hung out together. And there's just a really great family vibe. It doesn't have any sense of ego or hissy fits or any of that sort of stuff going on. We play golf together, we go to dinners together, uh, we sing backstage together, make up songs, just have fun doing it. Then we go out and do almost four hours of just hit after hit after hit after hit from all three bands. And uh, there's a few little surprises along the way, which I don't want to reveal too soon, where people uh, will be disappointed or know what to expect when they come to the show. So it's just a lot of fun, and uh, four hours of really good fun rock and roll. 
Yeah, it really is. Now, um, in terms of new music, uh, the last time that we've had a new album from you was Road to Forever in uh, 2012, extended edition in 2013. Is that something that still interests you to get into the studio and put together a collection of new music? I'm uh, seven tracks into finishing a, a new CD, probably for the first quarter of 2018. Uh, I have a lot of uh, guest stars on it with me that I can't disclose at this moment, but uh, it's a lot of fun working with a lot of people that I've known, played with, toured with, wrote with done stuff with back in the 70s just a, a, a lot of fun to go in and write and record songs with uh, other guest artists as well and it's it's just a really fun rocking record so i've got five more tracks to do when i finish with this united we rock tour and we'll have it out for the first of uh, next year when you get into a studio to do these a new album like this do you look back at sort of the history and say, okay, I need to make something that sounds like that from 1977 or 1970? Or is it sort of this freedom of whatever comes out, it'll be what it'll be? I think it's the latter. I, I don't try to sound like anybody. I can't help but sound like me. And uh, there was a lot of me on a lot of the Eagles records, the guitar work that I did in those records. And so a lot of people say, well, that sounds like it should have been an Eagles track. Well, I, I can't help it. It just sounds like me when I make records. And one of the fun things is to get other people and other players in on, on records. So it doesn't sound all like me. I've got uh, other guitarists that I can't name at the moment coming in and playing uh, solos with me and uh, other singers coming in to sing with me, uh, great writers, amazing musicians. So it's just, it's fun to go in and just kind of have a, a blank canvas and sit down with somebody and write an idea and a song and lyrics and produce it and record it and, and play it. It's great. A lot so, of fun. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, now speaking of the Eagles, um, you wrote, of course, Hotel California. Years ago, I was speaking to Doug Feger of The Knack, and he told me that My Sharona was this golden albatross in the sense that the song became so big that he could never seem to top it, and yet it gave him his house and his pool and all is it possible for a song to get too big? You know, Hotel California was such a ubiquitous hit that was everything you did after always sort of compared to that? Did the record company sort of say, yeah, but we don't hear another Hotel California? Well, you know, there's a certain uniqueness about a song like that or a song that has just, you know, worldwide kind of global acceptance. Uh, that it's really hard to try to duplicate it. You, you didn't try to uh, create that to have that impact in the first place. It just sort of happened by whatever magic happened to be in the combination of lyrics and vocals and music and guitar parts and just sort of happened that it was received that way. So I've never had the approach that I need to go out and try to make another Hotel California. I just write and record the songs that I hear, I like, enjoy playing and recording just like I did Hotel. As a matter of fact, I when we finished the, the album Hotel California, we had a playback session for the recording company, the record company. We played it, and after Hotel finished playing, Don turned around and said, that's going to be our single. And in the 76, I think is when that came out, 76, 77, uh, AM radio wouldn't play anything over three minutes and 30 seconds long. And Hotel California is six and a half minutes long. It doesn't... You can't really dance to it like a rock song or a drippy ballad. It's just 
it's a unique piece of music. And I said, Don, I think that's, I think that's like an FM cut. I don't think that's an AM radio track. And I didn't even believe that it would do nearly as well as it has. And so I was proven wrong again by the wisdom of Don Henley. And he insisted that we put that out as a single and, it is what it is today. Yeah, well, you you certainly can't uh, dispute the fact that I guess he was right about that. Uh, being such a long song, though, do you think that it changed the course of uh, radio in the United States? Because you're right, you know, especially coming from the 60s with the Beatles and, you know, two and a half minute songs. Did it sort of change the industry where people said, oh, OK, maybe we can do six minute songs now? Well, I think between that and Stairway to Heaven, the disc jockeys loved it because they could put that record on, talk for a few seconds to introduce it, and then they could go outside and have a cigarette break. They had a five or six minute break where they could actually leave the control room or go grab a cup of coffee or go to the bathroom or something. It was like a nice place and a way for them to have a little break. So in that regard, yeah, I think it did. They had they had something that was popular that they could play and it's it's kind of suited them as far as getting up out of their chair and having a break at the same time. So I think it all just went on to change the uh, kind of the format for for radio. It, re- it really did. Now, now speaking of of changing uh, the course of history, uh, you met Bernie uh, Leiden uh, years ago. How did he affect your career? Because he sort of dragged you along to to California, and then. The rest is sort of history, right? Yeah, he. Uh, we had this band in high school. Uh, he actually replaced Stephen Stills in this band. Stephen and I had a band when we were 14, 15, something. And Stephen took off and moved to California. And Bernie showed up like a month later and wound up taking over that slot in this band. And uh, we, we became great friends. He uh, was a, just a bluegrass country music master with five-string banjo, mandolin, pedal steel, acoustic flat-top guitar. I didn't own any of those instruments. I only owned electric guitars. So we went to the store. I bought an acoustic guitar. He bought an electric guitar, and he was playing electric guitar in this band. I was playing acoustic guitar in this bluegrass band with him. So we kind of influenced each other. Um, My introduction to country bluegrass music was through Bernie, and his introduction to playing rock and roll was through me and that early band. And finally, he left, moved back to uh, California, and kept calling me and saying, you got to move to L.A. This is where the music scene is. And I was in Florida, and then I was in New York, and then in Boston, uh, working in the business, making records and playing in bands and stuff. But he finally convinced me to pack up and move to L.A. And when I got there, I slept on the floor of his house for a couple of days until he left to go on the road. And I found an apartment. And uh, he was not only a, a great friend, but a big supporter and a big help and just getting me to where I had the opportunity to be seen and heard in the music business. One of the sort of most profile ones was, of course, working with Graham Nash and David Crosby back in the early 70s. Uh, Coming out of the 60s, those were sort of uh, perhaps an an American version of the Beatles. I mean, certainly well-respected and well... Um, Talk to me about getting that gig and then the decision to join the Eagles because the Eagles weren't established yet. Was it a gamble for you to, to, to pack up and say, okay, I'm moving over? Yeah, when I first got to L.A., one of the first bands uh, or jobs I had was working with a guy, sort of like a Bob Dylan-type acoustic guitar, 
writer, singer, kind of folk guy. And uh, he had written the song called Outlaw Man. His name was David Blue, and it was on the Eagles' Desperado record. And so Graham had produced David Blue's solo record. And on the record, David Lindley, who's just a magnificent musician, had played electric guitar, slide guitar, uh, uh, mandolin, just all these instruments to embellish what David was doing. Uh, and so David uh, Graham wanted to have David Blue open for the Crosby Nash tour. So they hired me to do all the stuff that David Lindley had been doing on the David Blue record. And they hired David Lindley to play with the Crosby Nash band. So we were on the road and I would sit and watch Crosby Nash show every night because it was just spectacular. The vocals, the songs, everything about it was just wonderful. And uh, David Lindley got really sick. So Graham called me up and said, come up to my room and bring a guitar. So I went up to his room and he says, you have to play our show tonight. David Lindley's sick. And so we sat there and I ran through all the songs with him. I pretty much learned the songs just from watching them. Went out and played the David Blue opening act. And then went back out and played Crosby Nash. And we had such a great reaction and such a good time that they actually sent David Lindley home the next day because he was sick. And I wound up playing the rest of that tour together, uh, doing both shows. And then whenever Crosby Nash went out, I was, they hired me um, to go out with them. Now, I got a call from Glenn to come in and play slide guitar on an Eagles record called Good Day in Hell. And I went in just like any other session and Bernie was there and I'd met the guys, hung out with them, jammed with them before. And we played this track recorded. I think it was two hours or something. We worked on it and I went home, took my stuff and the next day I got a call from Glenn asking me to join the band. Now I had heard from Bernie for years about the turbulence and, and difficulty and just arguments and like everybody was somebody was quitting the band nearly every day and I was married and my wife was pregnant about to have my first child and uh, uh, I was with Crosby Nash and they were paying me $1,500 a week which in 74 was a lot of money and I didn't know how long this whole Eagles thing was going to work or if it was going to last a month or what. So it, I had to go ask the, uh, Graham Nash what I should do. And he said, you should absolutely, definitely join that band. That's a great band. And you never just want to stay a sideman for the rest of your life. So I joined the band and the rest is history. Yeah, it really is. Um, after... Uh, you left the uh, Eagles in the early 80s. You you concentrated on family, but also um, work for the movies. Why not at that time just sort of go straight into forming a new band? You had the name. You had some, you know, excuse the word, but you had some heat, right? I mean, you were a hot commodity. Why not get into another band or embark on a more extensive solo career? You did put out an album, but you sort of stuck to, you know, being a session guy and, and, and putting out, film soundtrack songs i wanted to stay home my kids had grown up for the first six or seven years of their lives with no dad and i wanted to be you know a soccer coach and drive carpool and be mr mom and you know just be there for my kids i didn't want to go back on the road it's when you have young kids it's really hard in those days there was no 
FaceTime and no fax machines. And you just happened to call the house if they were there and someone answered, you could talk to them. And if they called your hotel room and you happened to be in the room, you could speak with them. So there was very poor communications. And so I really wanted to stay home. So I chose not to put together a band and go out on the road. Although management uh, really was pushing me to do that after heavy metal came out, I just, I didn't want to go back out on the road. And now that my children are grown and out with kids of their own, I'm free to go out and work and play as much as I like. And I love to do it. Right. And, and, and I have to say that that's, that's, that's very respectful to be, you know, family first. I mean, you know, so many people chase, uh, you know the big mansion and and the fame and the glory and they they seem to sometimes forget about family so that's that, that's great that you would uh, mention that um, the long run the album after Hotel California commercially very successful was it successful though in terms of uh, you know musically were you happy with it because it sort of got panned but there was also this well it's not Hotel California. Um, Good album for you or a difficult one? It was a struggle. The writing was really difficult. Uh, everybody had set that bar at Hotel California to write and record and perform as good, if not better than that. And uh, it became very difficult. Uh, there was such pressure with that follow-up record that I, I think we got to a point in the record where Glenn was not singing uh, a hit he was only singing one song which was called teenage jail which was so not radio oriented that he got really upset and left the studio and got on a plane in miami and flew back to la and um finally we came up the, through bob Seeger with the song heartache tonight uh, but until that time uh glenn wasn't even singing like a, a radio playable it was just difficult it was really hard to be creative and spontaneous and free. There was a, a heavy tone to the whole thing. And if you look at even the artwork, it's like the Black Album. It's kind of a dark period uh, for us. And as far as we knew, it may be the end of that run. Uh, it had been a quote-unquote long run that we had been doing compared to a lot of one-hit wonders. But uh, the way it was going, we just didn't know that... Uh, we were going to, you know, stay around for another year or so. So it, it was just a, a difficult record. I think musically, there's a couple of great songs on it. I don't think it has the same enthusiasm and uh, creative freedom that we did on Hotel California, uh, mainly because of the pressure and the follow-up to it. It's like you go have a great movie and the sequel is always not quite as good. You know what I mean? So that's kind of the way the long run felt. Yeah. And it's hard to, 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 you know, bring that momentum forward. Um, Tom Petty, back in the days of uh, Gainesville, Florida, you were his guitar teacher, basically. Um, yeah. Uh, I worked in this little music store there called Lip of Music. And uh, Tom came in one day and he had been playing bass in this band called the Epics, which I thought was just wonderful that Tom was using the name or the word Epic 40 years, maybe 50 years uh, ahead of it being rediscovered in the last year or so, where everything now is, oh, that's an epic track. That's an epic solo. And so every time I hear that word, I think of Tommy's band in Gainesville. But 
he came in the music store and he was playing bass in this band and he really wanted to play guitar. He thought it was better to front a good, uh, with guitar and he wanted to write with guitar. It's hard to write just playing bass. So he came in and started taking lessons from me and then I helped him at several rehearsals with his band. He had two guitar players that would just thrash artlessly and just didn't know that one should play rhythm and one should play lead and the lead guy shouldn't play when the singer is singing, you play around the holes, around the singer, just kind of just helped him with some of the arrangement. And uh, Tom was, even in those early days, had just a really kind of strong stage presence. He would sell you on whatever he was doing just by his attitude on stage. He was just so committed and so strong and self-confident that everybody bought it. And I think to this day, it's with Tommy. He comes out and he's got this look on his face, plays and writes great songs. Never really became a great shredder, which neither am I as far as shredding. But, uh, you know, I, I think he learned enough to do okay, write some decent songs. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's doing okay for himself. Um, from yeah. a very early age also, you've been a Gibson guitar guy. Uh, and in fact, uh, back in 2010, they released the Hotel California EDS 1275 guitar in your honor. Uh, uh-huh. What was it about Gibson that attracted you to that guitar in terms of, of tone, playability? Uh, why, why a Gibson guy? Why that commitment to the brand? Well, I, I play a lot of different kind of guitars. I play Gibson, I play Fender, I play Gretsch, I play Guild, I play Taylor. I have close to 300 different guitars in my collection. So, But the primary thing that I've used in the studio on Eagles records uh, is a Les Paul. And uh, I've also played Tellys on records, Strats on records, all sorts of other guitars, Gretsches on records that... Uh, but the most iconic things, like the solo on one of these nights, the solo on Hotel California, were all that my original 59 Les Paul through a tweed, um, a 57 tweed deluxe, and just has a certain sound. And it seems like that just seems to resonate when Joe played a, a Telly or a Strat, and I played Les, played Les Paul, and Glenn played his uh, Les Paul special with P90 pickups in it. It was like a really nice combination of tonal uh, separation. You could really hear clearly each guitar part instead of a big mush. So it wound up, I got stuck being a Les Paul guy. Joe played Les Paul on some stuff too. I played Straddle stuff. We'd trade and reconfigure that threesome of guitar parts uh, by changing guitars, and it kind of changed the sound as well. It really did. And uh, I see we're running out of time, so I'll finish with these two. Uh, the autobiography, Heaven and Hell, My Life in the Eagles, that came out in uh, 2008. Um, difficult to write that book? Was it cathartic? Was it, was it vengeful? Was it just, I just want to have my point of view out there? Uh, looking back on it, um, how did that turn out for did, I mean, was there a catharsis for writing that? It never really started out to be a book. I okay. failed ninth grade at English and had to spend summer school in English class making up English so I could go on to the 10th grade. So the last thing I ever thought I would become would be an author. But when I left the Eagles and I went through a divorce from my wife of 29 years in the same 12-month period, everything I knew in my life had changed. My band, my 
business, the company that I owned a third of, my touring, everything, all that gone. My wife, my family, my home, all that stuff gone. So it was a time for me to sit down and I started out with a series of daily meditations every morning for about 30 minutes. And I would go back meditating on a specific point of my life, back to my childhood when I first started playing music and how my parents had encouraged me and, you know, everything that took place. And as I came out of these daily meditations, I would scribble down those recollections and, and insights uh, on legal pads. And pretty soon they started piling up on my desk. And uh, unbeknownst to me, my fiance at the time went in and started reading these things and said, you know, this would make a really great book. And I went, look, I'm not an author. I can't, that she said no 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 i'm telling you this is a really great story and so she introduced me to a guy named michael ovitz who was and still is a really big player in hollywood entertainment business and he had a literary department in his uh, organization and company at the time and next thing i know i'm on a plane going to new york with my literary agent uh and we haven't even written the book we have a two-page kind of synopsis of what this book is going to be about and so I have five meetings there with uh, big publishing companies and I'm on a plane coming back and I've got five offers from uh, the five companies that we met with. And then I have to decide, am I going to write and publish a book or not? And after I thought about it, it felt like a really good way to really put out my whole life, not just the Eagles part of it, but just my whole life. So, I went in and had all those notes transcribed into, you know, a computer. We could go through and edit, read, clean up stuff. I had a editor at the publishing house that I decided to go with, help me tidy up things. Uh, I had a lot of a uh, review to make certain things were chronologically uh, accurate and legally accurate. And finally, I said, "Yeah, this is this is a really good story. I'm proud of my life, warts and all." So here goes. I published it. So wound up on the New York Times bestsellers list, and I never thought a failing ninth grade English student would <laughs> write something that wound up on the New York Times bestselling list. And it must have felt good, I guess, to, to get all that stuff out and, uh, you know, off your conscience and just put it out there. Um, very, very cathartic. It was very cathartic. Um, their greatest hits, 1971-1975, one of the biggest selling records of all time in fact probably the biggest selling what is it about the eagles and that music and that collection that just speaks to so many people around the world i mean why why is it not just you know double platinum and and the impact just talk to me about the impact about that collection and and the band and and why it's so revered i i i think musically it was the first bridge between old school country and the rock and roll of 60s and 70s early 70s it was sort of like the combination or fusion of the first quote unquote country rock and now you listen to almost everything out of nashville in one way or another it sounds like eagles records it's just sort of it just it was a new approach to writing and recording and a, a happy merger between country music and rock and roll. So I remember seeing the Eagles before I joined the band, they were opening for Yes, right after their first record. They were wearing 
cowboy boots and bell-bottom jeans and I think Glenn had a black cowboy hat he would wear on stage and it was it was really like country rock music and I couldn't figure out why they were opening for Yes which is this English kind of you know totally different music band but it worked and they got their coverage out and exposure and people loved it yeah they really did um Putting aside all the lawsuits and all that nonsense, and excuse me if that's not the right word for it, but looking back, are you proud of what you accomplished with the Eagles, or is there, or is it just regret after regret? No, I, I think that it was a very magical combination of talent, creativity, writing, vocals, guitar parts, arrangement, uh, producing, recording, engineering, including Bill Simpson, and all the different members of the band between Bernie, Randy, Timothy Schmidt, Joe Walsh, all the different configurations kind of always had some magic to it. Uh, and it seems like, uh, to me, the favorite combinations were when Bernie was in the band and then right after he left when Joe came in the band. And there was a shift there between country to more rock with Hotel California and uh, it, it was just, it was a magical combination, in my opinion. Yeah, it really was. And, uh, you know, who knows, right? But, uh, Don, absolute pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed this, and thanks for taking the time to do this for me, and I hope we can do it again in the future. Yeah, hopefully when you have that new album, I'd, I'd love to get a, another, because we, we left out so much. We didn't talk about Dwayne Allman. We didn't talk about the one song you got to sing with the Eagles' visions. We'll, we'll do that next round. Thank you, Don. All right, Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. Hey, Mitch here. And uh, are you in the market for a new car? And want to see what others have paid? Well, in order to feel confident and comfortable that you are getting a fair price, you need pricing context. Information that empowers you to feel confident. With True Car, you will see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local True Car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. True Car will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. Now that you know what a fair price is, you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is a competitive pricing offer to you only by True Car Certified Dealers for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a fast buying process when they connect with True Car certified dealers. True Car users save an average of $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Have you heard Spike's Car Radio? It's comedian, actor, writer Spike Ferriston sitting on the porch in Malibu talking with some cool people about cool cars and life in general. My first guest is Jerry Seinfeld. He's right here. He was all right. 
Don't try to hug him. Chris Hardwick. I could feel everything on the road. I mean, it was right. basically like, it was like unprotected sex for driving. <laughs> Jeremy Piven. I hold you know what? I think you and Jerry are spiritually tied to cars, <laughs> and I respect it and I love it, but I don't quite get it yet, but I want to get it. Download new episodes of Spike's Car Radio every Wednesday on the Podcast One app, or save time and subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or at PodcastOne.com. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. A big thank you to Don Felder. Great, great guest. Great stories. Absolutely love that. And uh, always a pleasure to talk to somebody who wrote a song like Hotel California. Because, you know, nobody's ever heard of it. <laughs> right. Um, now we're going to talk to uh, not one but two guests. First up will be George Thorogood, and then right after George, I will have Mike Skill of The Romantics. I've put them together on this episode because they have something in common, and that is the year 1977. George, of course, released George Thorogood and The Destroyers, their self-titled debut album. And Mike, with the rest of The Romantics, well, they, well, they got together. They formed. Uh, they are currently on their 40th anniversary tour, so we'll, uh, we'll talk about that in a few. But first, let's uh, focus on George. He's got a new album called Party of One, and uh, it really is a unique, unique concept because it really is George, well, one. It's him on guitar, his voice, his everything. There's, there's nothing else but George on this album, which is, which is absolutely fantastic. And once you get to hear it, you'll understand it's exceptionally uh, heartfelt. Uh, so we'll get to that. The other thing about George is um, he likes to bust the chops of interviewers. We've now done three interviews, and he refers to me always as Montreal Mitch, which is sort of a fun name. But what's fun about this one is that, uh, you know, I, I get along with him, and we, we, we have this give and take, and it, it just makes for this really sort of fun vibe and energy when we do these interviews. So we'll start off with uh, George Thorogood, and then stick around to hear about the romantics, that song that they have, Talking in Your Sleep. You know, listen. One of my absolute favorite songs of all time. In fact, just as I'm as I'm saying it now, I can hear the words conjuring up in my head, and I'm I'm gonna have to get to George here because otherwise I'll start singing for you, and um, well, <laughs> that would be uh, problematic, I think. So uh, here we go. Without further ado, the one, the only. George Thorogood. We are speaking with George Thorogood. The new album is A Party of One. And uh, George, I've actually uh, been sent in advance and I've been listening to it. It is very, very uh, powerful. Just the fact that it's so stripped down, uh, the emotion and, and the feel just sort of seeps through. Um, sort of talk to me about this album and, and doing it really by yourself. Well, it's the first time I've ever attempted anything like this, Mitch. I. Uh... I have cut, you know, a couple of solo pieces on on albums here and there, two or three of them. Um, it's the first time I ever did anything like this. So we made certain halfway through it to start selecting material that were artists that were very close to me, or artists that influenced me, or I listened to when I started out. So that's where the a lot of the emotion and the passion came through because, you know, I going way back, I remember almost within like a week. I discovered Hank Williams and uh, Robert Johnson at the same time. I, I don't mean I discovered them. I should say it was the first time I was um, exposed to both those artists, and I, I couldn't I couldn't figure out which one was greater, Robert Johnson or Hank Williams. Now that's that's an interesting spot to be in. So 
you know, going down the line, the first blues person I ever heard uh, or saw was Howling Wolf on Shindig. And at that same performance, coincidentally, was the first time I ever saw anyone play fly guitar, which was Brian Jones playing Red Rooster on the slide. And then so when I decided to do No Expectations, which Brian Jones played slide on, I said, well, this is all just making too much sense to me. <laughs> it's, all, it's all falling into place here. Um, and what are the odds that the first slide I ever heard was Brian Jones and the first blues guy I heard was Hank, I mean, uh, Howling Wolf at the same time. So I said, well, doesn't it make sense? And I said, well, they said, well, what song can you play by the Stones you can play alone? And that would happen to be it. Um, like I said, I, maybe it was maybe it was just fate. Maybe I was destined to make this record. Who knows? Yeah, and you know, but when they talk about a solo album, usually they'll bring in a full band of of guest musicians. And, and why the concept really just be you, your voice, and a guitar, and not have a session drummer or a well known, you know, uh, bass guest or something? Why? Why just you because, alone? Because that's what Rounder wanted, and they're the label. <laughs> I mean, you know, they they were the they were the company that wanted to do this project, and that's that's was part of the you know the deal to do that because I, I I was going to do that with Rounder when I started out, but it never did, it never came to came saw the light of day, so to speak. And years later, we ran into Scott from Rounder, and uh, we discussed this, and you know that that's what they wanted so that's what i gave them yeah and it turns out great so in fact your first uh two albums were out on rounder talk to me about that relationship with that label and the importance of ken Irwin and scott billington in your career because i guess without them giving you that sort of first chance uh back in 76 we probably wouldn't be speaking right now it's absolutely true because um I was just having a double of a time uh, getting any. I, I had no representation really for our band. Uh, we didn't even have an agent or a manager or anything. So, um, plus I didn't do any originals then. And uh, although we had a really good live act and some really interesting material, which I thought was enough to get on a record label, and the, all the fans that came to see us and other artists we work with, Brandy, Sonny, Hound Dog, Taylor, Muddy Waters, people like that, agreed. They said, well, you guys have to be on record. So I was thinking, well, yeah, well, we have to find the right label. So Rounder showed a little bit of interest. They they were very polite. They they never said no to me. They didn't say yes, but they never said no. So I kept, you know, on that. And then finally one of them came to see us play live, and that's pretty much what, what did it. They said, well, we're going to record this band. One record, see how it goes. And that moved on to a second record. Uh, but it wasn't easy at first. Um and besides, they're a bluegrass label. You know, they're like they they make albums like like people make documentaries. You follow what I'm saying, Mitch? Yeah. It's not uh, your standard commercial label. It's one even a major label. I didn't realize that at the time. I said, well, that's what they do. They record unusual song, unusual artists, uh, like street musicians or someone from the Allegheny Mountains or something, and they document one record, then they move on. Um, and I didn't know that, so I, I it took it took. I mean, several years of here on now, I know why they were kind of balking at us. And it's not that we don't like what you do, we're just not that kind of label. So, But I, my thinking was, well, i got to have some label. Somebody's going to cut bourbon, scotch, and beer before I do, and I'm going to be done before I even start. So I was, I won't say I was desperate, but I was, I was very, um, I, there was an urgency there with me to do this. So we kept the relationship strong over the years, 
and decided to do this. Now, uh, you mentioned one bourbon, one scotch, one beer, of course, the John Lee Hooker song. The version included on the album comes from Rockline, and we all know that uh, Bob Coburn, the host, passed away not too long ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk to me about, uh, first of all, including the version from that show, but what did that show mean uh, to rock, to your career, and what did Bob mean? Because, you know, up in Canada, we never really got a sense of Rockline, whereas if you, you speak to an American fan... It was the soundtrack of their life through the 70s or whatever, through the 80s and 90s. Um, talk to me a little bit about Bob and Rockline and, and using that version of the song. It was one thing when I went into do his show. I did, did uh, Bob's show several times, and I would always bring a guitar, and they'd say, well, why don't you play something? And that was one of the few things I could do as a solo player without, without a band, without a drummer, um, you know, most of that stuff, all the stuff I do is with a rock and roll ensemble behind me. Um, but that particular tune I could do, and I've been doing it for so long. Um, and, you know, like you said, uh, Rockline with Bob Coburn, that's like, a, that's like an institution in America, uh, you know, especially on the West Coast. So to be called back time and time again, and it was like being asked to come back on The Tonight Show, you know, time after time. Um, it was an established... Uh, institution in, in music, and you know Bob is right there. So I said, "Well, you, you don't want people to turn the radio off while you're doing your show. So play one of your hits. Can you play one of your hits alone?" And I said, well, "How about this one?" And then they kept it. I didn't know that they kept it. Then I heard it on the radio one day. I was doing something. I said, "I didn't even know it was me playing." And I heard it was years later. And I heard it playing, and I went, "Wow, that's pretty heavy. Who is that? Is that Taj Mahal? Is that John Hammond? Who is that? That, that cat's bad." He said, no, that's you. I said, what? Because <laughs> I had never heard it. So we searched and searched and said, well, we're going to put that piece on the record. You know, if, if not just for Bob, but that's the best I can play that song. Yeah, and, and, and it sounds great. Now, uh, the album, of course, has uh, different cover versions of, like we said, uh, The Rolling Stone, John Lee Hooker and stuff like that. Years ago, you famously said in an interview to, to Rolling Stone magazine, somewhere around 79, why should I write songs when Chuck Berry already wrote them all? Uh, I'd rather I learn... I said he was one of them. Uh, right. I said all the great songs have been written. Right. Uh, and, you know, people scoffed at me, but that was like about 11 or 12 years before the birth of classic rock radio. Now, classic rock radio happened, what, in the early 90s? Yeah, somewhere around there. Around then, yeah. Okay, so if you listen to the bulk, 75 to 80% of the music that they play on classic rock since then, is from about, you know, 1955 to about 1975. <laughs> so I didn't know it, but I was, I guess I was speaking the truth because that's generally what they play. You know, that's most of the time when you hear rock, rock classic radio is what, what rules the, the air, airwaves. That's what people, people are now growing up on that, not just listening to it and on a nostalgic way, there's been people who spent a lifetime growing up on these songs. So at that time, I was thinking, they saw all the great songs. Do you know a greater rock song than Jumpin' Jack Flash? No. Um, Roll you know Over Beethoven? What's that? <laughs> Roll Over Beethoven? Right, exactly. Right. My, my point exactly. Do um, you know a greater rock song than Stairway to Heaven? Or A Whole Lot of Love? And that's what you hear. So that's all I was saying at the time. You know, I was just... Those first two albums around were projects of mine to expose some very obscure material that I think people should know about these songs. And since Elvin Bishop or John Hammond or the Stones or any of those people have not recorded these songs yet, then I'm going to. 
But that was basically what it was going to be. That's those first two records for that reason. Um, to it, like again to expose these songs, never to say, "Oh, I'm going to start writing songs." So, well, what are you kidding? Can you write a song like like a Rolling Stone? Me huh? personally, no. Exactly. Me personally, either. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I was saying, "What's well, the point?" You know. You know. It's just, and then later, that's pretty much all we hear now. You know, it's those tunes from that time, especially from about about sixty-five to about seventy-two or seventy-three. When was the last time you didn't hear? Um, Rockin' Me Baby on the radio. It's on every day. Yeah. Why? Because it's a rock classic. That's, that's why it's played so much. Yeah, and, and, and you look also in terms of 2017 and 2016 at, at touring, what they call the classic rock acts or the heritage acts are the ones that bring in the uh, greatest grosses because people just keep wanting to go see those songs being performed live. There's, there's, there's a specialness to us. Now, of course, Chuck passed away earlier this year. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what he meant to you, because he, he really sort of changed the game, maybe even more uh, than the Beatles and Elvis. Because I mean, he was sort of number one, right? I would have to say, if I had to put it on 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 one hand and figure five artists who are the most important artists in in music. I don't know anything about jazz, or um, I'm not all that familiar with classical music or reggae or um, or even country music, but in the world of blues and rock, I think of there, there's only really five artists, the most important artists ever. Uh, Robert Johnson, Hank Williams, The Beatles, Bob Dylan, and Chuck Berry. They're the, they're the big five. Those are the ones that made the strongest impact on every artist in the world. Uh, am I wrong? No, not at all. Th- those are them. Yeah, and then Chuck Berry's one of them. I mean... What Chuck Berry said when he said, roll over Beethoven and tell Joukowsky the news, that wasn't just a, a social, a music phenomenon. That was a social phenomenon. He could have easily said, move over Eisenhower and tell Richard Nixon the news. See what I'm saying? In other words, he, Chuck was talking about this new wave of a lifestyle, not just music, that was coming on so strong, no one was going to be able to stop it. And he, like Bob Dylan and like Brian Wilson, were able to coin a phrase fit that perfectly and nobody did it better than chuck berry and i I know i'm not wrong about this because keith richards has been saying it for 50 years (laughs) yeah he really has been and uh it's it's a great loss to to, to lose chuck but the the music he's left us will will certainly go on forever and ever now uh you did cover of course a rolling stone song on this album back in the early 80s 81 i believe you opened up for the Rolling Stones. Uh, Prince was also on uh, that bill. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that experience. What was it like for a guy who had just been signed, you know, five years earlier to now share a stage with one of the, arguably the greatest rock band of all time? You're talking about me? Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. well, well, yeah. Hey, George, you're right up there. Well, no, I have been... I had been gearing up. I, I was very relaxed doing that, very excited, but you know, I was relaxed, excited, um, very sure of myself, because I'll tell you why. When I went to do that, I had been gearing myself up to do that um, since like about 1966, about 1967. I was prepared for it. Uh, in 75, 78, when I didn't get that gig, especially 78, that's when I started to get a little love. Uh, I got a little testy. I said, I should be on that show. I've been waiting for this show. I've been waiting to do this. 
working, honing my act to do this, to open and play with the Rolling Stones. And when it came around in 81, I was going to make sure I wasn't going to miss it, even if it was one gig and I had to play for free. I was going to do that because I had been working for that to be at that point for years, you know, to, to set myself up for that. Um, and it worked out beautifully. And lo and behold, the next day, Bill Graham and the Rolling Stones hired me again, then again, then again, and we fit right into it. Um, which is what that was that was not by accident that was by plan with me anyway yeah and and it it's an incredible plan to to think that you had sort of the what's the the, the, the bravado to say hey I, I belong on the stage with the rolling stones cuz most people would would consider it dumb luck or oh my god i'm so but um you know uh, another thing that you're known for of course is being a humongous or a huge new york mets fan um probably a little tough to be a fan this year for with the mets but Baseball is that other love of yours. Was there a plan to really go f- forward as a professional baseball player and guitar and, and music was second, or was guitar and music first and baseball was? Well, if it works out, we'll see. Yeah, sure. I wanted to be a major league baseball player when I was throwing a baseball on a pillow in my bedroom. That's it? <laughs> I'm making a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Every kid when they're 12 years old, you know. No, I never, uh, uh, you know, that, that that crossed my mind maybe for about two weeks, and that was about it. Uh, no, when I was prior to that, I wanted a career in show business, and I was very serious about getting into comedy, actually, when I was, <laughs> you know, sixth, seventh grade, um, gathering jokes, um, you know, watching the greats on television, Phil Silvers and Ernie Kovacs and Gleason and, Jack Benny and on and on and on, Eve Arden and Ann Southern, a whole bunch of people that were very funny, and I was very into that. Until I saw this band on television from England, and this guy had a guitar shaped like a violin, and it was upside down, and he played left-handed, and he walked up to the microphone and said, close your eyes, and boom, there went my comedy uh, career right out the window. And then a year later, I saw the Stones doing satisfaction on tv and i said that's it forget it <laughs> i'm gone the hook was in forever just like anybody else just like springsteen tom petty and yep. you know mellencamp chrissy hines and everybody else after they saw the stones they said that's it that's where i'm going that's what i'm going to do and you never look back um you've been known to be very anti-drug and and, and very determined to get uh, you know stay in shape you know, you're always part of a baseball team and you always had this stuff going on was it difficult through the 70s and 80s to maintain that and not get dragged into to that scene? No, it wasn't difficult at all. For one thing, um, you know, I need my rest. I need my energy. It was a trio, and I, I do all the singing and all guitar playing, so I couldn't, um, I couldn't mess around, and I looked behind me and saw what happened to, you know, Janis Joplin, what happened to Jimi Hendrix, and countless others that... Uh, what what happened to them? And I was thinking, I don't want that to happen to me. And another thing was, I couldn't afford any of that stuff. I, you know, I, I we got free beer. That was it. You know, we didn't. I didn't have the kind of money. And plus, it was against the law. I didn't want to go to jail. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I said there was all these elements. That just, I just got. It wasn't a moral issue. Believe me, it was just a practical, sensible thing with me to say. You got to stay away from that because do you want to go to jail, George? I said no. Okay, you want to die. No. Can you afford this stuff? No. Do you have an expensive lawyer that can bail you out at any time? 
so you know, it was just it wasn't uh, it wasn't anything I even gave, gave a second thought to. Yeah, and uh, now in terms of this solo record, um, is there a plan to maybe do another one down the road, or was the experience was the experience pleasurable, or was it difficult? Because now everything you know sort of lay on your shoulders. If it's great, it's your shoulders, and if it's bad, it's your shoulders. Um, was the pressure too much, or was it enjoyable and like, hey, let, let's do this again in 2019? There will be no party of two. No, huh? No. <laughs> it was difficult then when I first started out. It's just as difficult now, except for I was doing it in a studio, and you can do a second take or a third take or take a little break for a couple hours, let your hands relax. Uh, when you're doing it live, you don't have, you know, I, I, I say, I've said it again, I don't want to be boring, but there's only one Taj Mahal, there's only one John Hammond who can go out there and do that. It's just amazing that those cats can play a whole 45 minutes or an hour alone like that. So I'm not one of those kind of people. So I went into a band out of, out of necessity. I said, I cannot carry it alone. Two, three songs tops. Right. Um, but then I got to get an electric guitar and a drummer and start rocking. Uh, that's really my true nature anyway. Well, let's talk about George Thorogood and the Destroyers for a second, because your name is sort of on the forefront. How is it different in terms of band and solo? Because with your name on the marquee or prominently, does that not make you sort of the leader and, and therefore any album could be a solo album anyway? Your vision, your songs, your... How is this one different? Well, it's different because the other album, say George Thurgood and the Destroyers, and one of them just says George Thurgood. Okay. That's the difference. One of them has with the band, the other one without the band. <laughs> but but you're still George Thurgood on the marquee, so so when you put in a, a George Thurgood and the Destroyers album together, is it very collaborative, or do you just sort of walk in and say, hey guys, these are the ten songs I've got, learn them, and we're recording it in two hours? Oh, it used to be that, and it wasn't two hours. We'd already have them done. We don't have that kind of money or time to say, you know, hey, lure them in two hours. Uh, two hours turns into two months. Um, it's not as simple as that. We were pretty well rehearsed long before we get to the studio, know what we want to do. Time is of the essence, and so is money. Um, well, we, you know, we, don't, we can't afford to be in there for two or three months hashing out. A, you know, when we did that, we'd go broke, you know. Um, so we're, we're very prepared. Yeah, I say these are the songs we're going to do. After all, I'm the one that has to sing them. So it has to be something my voice can handle, something I believe in. Um, and I just tell the guys in the band this, and here's, here's the rules. If you don't like the song, you don't have to play on it. I'm not going to make you. Um, either don't play or we'll find someone else to play it. And if you can't get a hold of it or none of us can get a hold of it, then we'll drop it. We'll move on to something else. So that's generally the process, with this band anyway. When will we see another End and the Destroyers album? Is that something that, that's in the pipeline, or is the solo album something you're going to focus on uh, for the next little bit? You know, um, you know, it's something that I don't think that you entertain the thought. As, as years go on, the entertaining that thought gets smaller and smaller after what you've done. When you start out, you've got a whole boatload of ideas of things you want to do, and you move on, and but the, the thought is never will never disappear. There's, there's there's always a chance of that. If and when it'll happen, that I can't tell you. Is it necessary to to make an album at this point? Oh, if you want to keep your profile going, I took a page out of Eric Clapton's book, and you know his catalog was terrific, and, and he did a solo record, acoustic, very successful. Uh, he did a blues album called uh, From the Cradle. He did an album driving with the King with BB King. Then when I had made an album, um, me and Mr. Johnson. Um, so they were projects that kept 
Eric Clapton's profile um, in the forefront, which um, I really admired. At the same time, they still play his classics on the radio. You hear Layla on the radio. You hear Crossroads on the radio. Um, you hear his stuff, and when you see him live, it's you know 90% of what you're going to hear when he when he does his show. Uh, but he did these other things to you know keep his profile, and they were they were all uh, projects he was probably you know 100% sincere about, um, which is admirable, and or he probably wouldn't have done them to begin with. But as on a business angle, he's smart enough to know hey, we got to do something every two or three years, you know, to keep Eric Clapton going. And that, that's, that's probably standard with a lot of people. Right. And, of course, the, the touring. Uh, no plans of, re- of retirement, I would imagine. You, you'll just keep going until you can't? Well, there's, there's always plans, but then somebody calls me up and says, hey, why don't you, why don't you come up to Montreal and play a gig? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then when we do that, we say, okay. And they say, well, well while you're up here, why don't you come play in Toronto? Yeah. I'm like, well, okay, well, while you're up there, why don't you play in Ottawa? <laughs> So you see how it works. I see how it works. And unfortunately, there, there are no Canadian dates that I've seen for the next uh, few months, but you are coming up to Vermont, so I might have to, to drive out and, and see that one. And, and, and I'll finish on this today. In 82, you released the Bad to the Bone album, uh, of course, spawning one of the most ubiquitously used uh, songs ever. What did that album, not just the song, but what did that album mean to you? Is that sort of the one that launched you into that next sphere of 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 your career or is it just an album like any other it did and it didn't um okay. it did get us on mtv it did get us a deal with a, a major record label that it did we made the record for one reason because of that song and then filled out the rest of the album with other songs but we needed that tune um to 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 sustain or take a step up um to where we were what we were doing before rock classic radio did not exist at that time uh, MTV did, so we said so we got to get Bad to the Bone on MTV. That helped us a lot. But when Rock Classic Radio picked it up seven or eight years ago, that's when Bad to the Bone started to really happen. Uh, but we needed that tune because you always need another tune. But I was like, you got to have something that has a you can't play Broom and Scotch and Beer for the rest of your life. Yeah, that one song, you got to move on. Try to get something that's closer to the rock world because I played with the Stones played with Jay Giles, and I saw how our act, our audience responded to our act. And, they, and the people in the audience were 99% rock fans. So I said, well, this is what you got to do. Come up with a rock album or a rock song. Yeah, you made two very interesting blues records with Rounder, but you've got the, you've got the ear of radio and MTV. Find something they'll dig. And that's when we came up with Bad to the Bone. Great song. And, of course, the album that came after Maverick, uh, with, of course, I Drink Alone. Just another classic. I mean, I, mean, I remember, uh, you know, being 13, 14 at the time, just buying those albums, and, and it was just a, a different world from uh, what I was listening to then, Huey Lewis and, and early Kiss and all that, and then you come in with these songs, and you go, whoa, that's refreshing. And uh, here we are all these years later. Still refreshing, George. Always always a pleasure, by the way, speaking with you. It's always a pleasure speaking to you, and... Uh... Always a pleasure coming into your beautiful city, and I hope to visit it soon. Yeah, hopefully uh, you'll be up in Montreal soon. And, and if not, uh, we'll encourage folks to head over to the uh, Vermont gig, and I believe it's in August. Well, I would appreciate it if you come over and say hello to me. Absolutely. Uh, always Thank a you. pleasure. Thank you, George. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. There you have it, folks, my interview with George Thurgood. New album is Party of One. 
Let us move over to the Romantics, another band that had 1977 as a special moment in their career. Of course, the band has some of the greatest songs from the 1980s. What I Like About You, which was later covered by Poison on their Poisoned uh, album. Uh, One in a Million, and my personal favorite, Talking in Your Sleep. Um, So I sit down with Mike Skill of the band. We go over the entire career, why they formed, how they formed, what happened, what didn't happen, the 40th anniversary, the current tour for 2017, and much more. Without further ado, because we've taken up a lot of time with all the other interviews, uh, here is, from the Romantics, the one, the only... Mike Skill. We are speaking with Mike Skill of the band The Romantics. Of course, the band has been around for 40 years. 40th anniversary uh, this year, Mike. Uh, <laughs> let's just talk Hi, about Mitch. that first, by the way. Hi, Mitch. How are you doing? Hi, Mitch. Good, great, good. Uh, great to talk to you. Yeah, sorry. I, I get so excited about these interviews that I forget all the all the, all the small stuff. But, uh, yeah, pleasure oh, to be right. here and pleasure to talk to you. But. You know, uh, what I like about you, talking in your sleep, one in a million, all these songs were sort of the soundtrack of my life, and it, it's it's sort of strange to sit here and think, this band's been around for 40 years. Um, well, yeah, I'm living it. Tell me about it. It feels like about um, 10 years. <laughs> really, really, it doesn't seem that long. Um, we, uh, you know, we still work, we're still uh, in, in a good sort of way that we can still go out and do it. You know, um, it's the three three of the original guys up front. Me on guitar. I originally played guitar in the first two records, uh, the Romantics and and um, and uh, National Breakout, two 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 records, and uh, Wally Wally Palmer on uh, vocal. Uh, well, in the middle on guitar and vocals. I'm on guitar and vocals, lead guitar and vocals, and Rich Cole on bass and vocals. And um, along the way, about 12 years ago, we picked up a drummer, uh, Brad Elvis, from a group um, out of uh, Chicago, um, the Elvis Brothers. They were kind of a pop, hard rock, uh, early uh, Buddy Holly-ish kind of rockabilly thing, pop thing. Kind of Beatles, Buddy Holly, and Stray Cats. <laughs> yeah, all, all great but, bands. Um, but, but yeah. you know... It, there, there is that thing about uh, songs, right? I mean, the, the songs I mentioned, they're partly responsible for while you're still here 40 years because they're, they're so powerful and so recognizable that fans just won't let you go, go away. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, so many memories and things are tied, uh, emotions are tied to music and uh, what the music does and uh, where it's played and when it's played and uh, what you were doing and what you were eating and drinking or hanging out, who you were hanging out with. It's tied to a deep emotional thing. And um, when you're band like the Romantics, I mean, we're pretty passionate. I mean, we, you know, this is, we're not faking it. I mean, it's uh, straight ahead raw stuff coming out. We're not like, we're not holding back and trying to be real cutesy vocals and cutesy this or that. We're just really pounding the drums and banging the guitars and you know it's still like we're kids in a garage but we're you know we play a little bit better <laughs> right you play a little bit better so um <laughs> the, the other thing that i find uh, interesting here is that you're still uh, putting out new recordings now in 2016 you did a cover of daydream believer and we got to get out of this place um talk to me about those songs and the other songs you've covered and where are we in terms of making 
new sort of romantic music and not just covers. Yeah, well, uh, that thing has uh, the thing we uh, we still haven't. Um, there's one last mix and master. I think there are a couple last mixes and masters to do. We were on the road all uh, the last couple of years. We did the Rick Springfield stuff and all that, and uh, open for them. And you know, we added that whole we added that whole raw new wave thing to that show and uh, that tour. And um, we didn't really get to finish it uh, completely, but we did put out some stuff to to kind of carry us over into the new year this year. And uh, and uh, we did get out. Um, we got to get out of this place by the animals was a slower version. We, we, uh, Brad suggested the drummer, Brad suggested picking up the beat a bit to, uh, and it's got a great bass line and it almost is like a, a slow, a soul song from the sixties. We got to get out of this place. We turned it into, and it's, it's really pretty raw. That's a cover. And then, uh, we did uh, coming back home was a song we, uh, came up with and, uh, that's an original and, uh, Wally and I, and, um, uh, and then there's another one that hasn't been released yet. yet. It's called Outside Interest, but it's not out yet. We're trying to get out uh, two more songs in the next few in the next months or so. Maybe an original and a cover, or or at least two, uh, a, co- a cover, one one or the other, one or the other, or both. So, and then I'm still writing all the time, and um, I've got my own little studio. And what I usually do is I'll uh, come up with something I need to hit where Brad lives uh, in Chicago and uh, go into the studio and record guitar and drums and then pass it down the line, head into Detroit or, or whatever, or we all get together when we can, when we can, when we can pull it up, pull it off. We all get together and like we did for this, uh, this EP, we are uh, this LP that we uh, put together with the covers, uh, the, the full on EP. Yeah. It had uh daydream believer. Uh, uh, we got to get out of this place. Um, I did a version of, um, I fought the law. Stuff that we kind of grew up on. Um, I mean, stuff for sure that we grew up on. You know, I fought the law. Every, I think every two or three bands that have done it, that I, you know, Clash and Green Day, they didn't really put the solo in. And I grew up like hearing the, the solo and the and the way the vibe of uh, the original Bobby Fuller Four. So it's kind of romantic meets a new wave kind of like uh, attitude thing to it. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we've got some stuff to release and uh, we've, we've got a full on CD uh, or uh, LP coming out, probably vinyl, um, but for sure CD first. And yeah. Internet. yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to that. When, when do you think that when will that be out? Do you think I'm trying to just finish? Uh, I'm trying to get out just two songs at the moment. And then as time uh, comes into the summer, I'd like to get the rest of it all out, the whole thing. So, so trying to get it out in the next, I hope in the next month or two, so we can do it alongside, uh, alongside of our uh, shows, so, so we can use it in the show. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Now, of course, you're in the studio yeah. right now, from what I understand. So, so I'm, I'm slowing down the process. Now, last year you mentioned Rick Springfield. Those shows included on different different dates. It was Rick Springfield, the Romantics, either The Fix, Night Ranger, or Lover Boy. Just yeah. a, a fantastic pageant. I mean, pa- great pairings. Um, what are we seeing for 2017 in terms of shows? Is it just the Romantics doing the 40th anniversary alone, or are we doing more pairings of that nature? Yeah, we're always working towards that, trying to put together together a good package. And, uh, you know, um, we're doing the same thing. We'll be with uh, Smithereens, I think, on a couple things. I think we're with the B-52s on the East Coast somewhere. Rick Springfield again, and... Um, there's a bunch of things. It's it's all it's a mix. This year's more of a mix than a tour with one person with one group. 
Um, you know, the thing about Rick Springfield, he's, he's, he's a little underrated as a rock and roller rocker. He's really a good rocker coming out of Australia and then moving to L.A. when he was really young. But uh, he he cooks on stage. He's a, he's a good performer, really good performer. So it was really oh, yeah. fun. They, they they watched our show. Uh, we hyped up the audience for them, and uh, and then they went on and took it from there. So it was it was really good. Yeah, Rick. So, yeah, I mean, Rick's great. Rick, Rick Rick is absolutely fantastic. Um, let, let's look back at at the band's history, and and we'll start way at the front here with Nemphra Records. Uh, put together by Brian Epstein of uh, Beatle fame, Beatle management. How did you come to the attention of Brian? Well, th- that was actually it was the other way around. Nat Weiss um, okay. was partnered with Brian Epstein on the on the U.S. side for uh, Beatles. Um, uh, no- I think it was Northern Songs or Northern or the Merchandise or that that kind of thing. It was it was the East the 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 American version of what was going on over there uh nat weiss was the attorney that partnered up with brian epstein and then he formed his own label in the early mid 70s right with stanley clark and a few other groups um, yep. um and um we kept hitting we were we put our band together in 77 four decades ago <laughs> and um and we were uh, we 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 were asked to open for the MC5. They were reformed. A couple of guys, MC5, and it was all radio people and uh, record people. And we kind of just slayed the the crowd. Uh, we took them by surprise with our short pop, our, our, our straight ahead rock and roll and pop songs, you know, with the new wave attitude, you know, and the look and everything. We kind of just uh, took over, and uh, we had we had a single out in about two weeks. We had a uh, I think I'll tell it to Carrie and I can't tell you anything maybe came out on spider records. And then we started touring uh, the East coast on all the little clubs and Toronto and Ohio and uh, Cleveland and up in uh, uh, Philly, all over the place, the rats killer in Boston club hurrahs in New York. Uh, we played um, early on. We played the CBGB's. Uh, we were supposed to play on the day, the day, the weekend of, uh, the blackout in 1977. That was the first year we were together. Right. Uh, there was a blackout. We were supposed to play that night uh, or that weekend uh, at CBGB's, and uh, and the blackout stopped that for a week. I mean, that the whole city was shut down for a week and a half or so. Oh, I, I, I remember that. That that they yeah. they, they made he- headlines for everybody, sort of stealing yeah. everything and sort of uh, you know, it was like well, the Lord of the. Just- yeah, well, I don't. Yeah, it got kind of a little crazy because you know it's the heat of the summer, July. I mean, and everything's yep. eighty, ninety degrees, and uh, you know, oh, New yeah. York, everybody crowded together. But uh, yeah, we were supposed to play like that night or the next night. We pulled up to the to the CBGBs in front and looking for Hilly, Hilly Crystal and uh, the owner. And uh, next thing you know, we're waiting for him to come over the, from somewhere, and uh, then the power just flashed off. Everything went out about six o'clock or five or six o'clock in the afternoon or whatever it was. And then we were out out of gig, and I think we held over and came back. We came back later on, but um, we did play there finally. But uh, no, we were all over the place, playing everywhere, all the little clubs. Like back then, there were New York had had actual punk rock clubs and new wave clubs, and L.A. had it, Boston had it, and maybe Chicago. But everywhere else, you had to go into a place and like a disco that would have would have a rock night or a punk night or a new wave night. Or uh, like a gay gay dance club, like a like where they would have uh, music all night till four in the morning or something. You could get in on there on a Wednesday night and they'd have new wave music or something. And uh, we did that up in 
Toronto at David's. They're called David's at New Wave in the middle of the week. The rest of the night, it was just a disco. Anyway, we put a signal, single out, and we hit the road. And we kept playing in New York, and we got the interest of uh, CBS was looking at us. Uh, we had talked to Capitol. Capitol, had, Capitol Records had uh, helped finance a, um, a, four, a four or six song um, demo. Right. Uh, and then those demos uh, we owned, so we, we put those out to Bob. Yeah. Um, Bob Records. And got noticed by uh, Nat, uh, Nat Weiss, uh, his A&R guy, uh, Patrick Clifford, um, who's down in Nashville now. But, uh, yeah, they had Steve Forbert. That was the other guy I was trying to think, think of. Steve Forbert was on Metro, too. Yeah. Kind of a folky guy. But anyway, they, they liked it, and uh, they wanted to groom us, and we had good pop stars. We got a producer, went into the studio, and... Uh, we had a guy that could pull the best out of us. We weren't too happy because I mean it was it was a it was a real um, how do I say it? it it's a real uh, not degrading, but you you're, you're going to the studio, you're doing all these live shows, you have these songs you've written for like three or four or five years, and you go to the studio and you you're actually getting the producers are cleaning the songs up, taking away a lot of the raw edge, the raw yeah, 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 mm. yeah. But and my point is that I think. Even though that affected us uh, mentally and emotionally, musically-wise, uh, and we always wanted, wanted the rawness to come out, and what that did is, I think, the bit of polish we put on it made the songs last longer. You know, they, they you, you get the best of the song, and the, the producer is supposed to bring out the best of the song, and I think the quality of the production has, has made those last. Um, although, yeah, right. you know, I still love live, and I love the live songs, you know, so... Yeah, it really has. Now, so, it's a two-edged so sword, you know. It's a two-edged sword, you know. You got, you know, you got to kind of, you know, hope that it uh, still has the attitude after the producer uh, tells him not to play a snare here or a tom tom here or a kick yeah. drum. Yeah, so so let's look at the first album. It spawns uh, the single "What I Like About You," which later on was covered by the band Poison. And in fact, I was listening to their version um, this week, actually. That song, it holds up. Yeah. I mean, we're we're looking at 37 years old, and it mm-hmm. still sounds great. Uh, and, of course, you had a hand in writing that. So just talk to me about that song in general and, and, and you know, how you put it together and what it's meant to you. Well, um, growing up uh, in the 60s and, uh, you know, it influenced uh, uh, learning guitar in the later 60s, 67 or so, um, 66 67 all this a lot of the songs we were hearing were if it wasn't motown or uh you know uh if, if it was the straight ahead guitar bands songs were basically like three or four chords they weren't were, there weren't too many you know paul river and the raiders four chords on the chorus just like me and um louis louis three or four song chords he really got me three or four chords uh musically and they were very simple and that's the uh, stuff i grew up on like the bashing the guitar Dave Davies on You Really Got Me and Louie Louie by the Kingsman. Those were the things like the raw, that was like raw punk to me back then and uh, when I was a kid. So uh, when it came to the 70s, late 60s, 70s, I'm listening to MC5 and uh, early Bob Seger and early Ted Nugent was when he was really, he just concentrated on guitar uh, and, and, and rocked really well. But there was a bunch of bands from in Detroit doing their own records because we had an incredible records radio station, CKLW, coming out of Windsor, and the antenna was so huge. The power 
they get some days they get it on or some nights they get it in Florida. I've heard from all the way from Canada, Windsor, Canada to Florida. Wow. So this this was powerful around the Great Lakes. You could have a single out. Bob Seward was single out, and they'd know it all around every state around the Great Lakes. You know, from Minnesota, you know, Illinois, all the way around, and then to Canada. So that that's that's we got a lot of good music. Uh, that that whole area, the, the third the third coast we call it, I guess you call it the third coast, and uh, we uh, I just uh, simple songs and they're really straight ahead. And MC Five were just raw, and Stooges were raw. Alice Cooper was coming out, and then uh, um, those bands went by the wayside for a little bit there. And uh, then we still had our attitude. We had, uh, you know, my thing was uh, I. On the nice days, I would get out in my backyard in my dad's house and bang on the guitar. And uh, so one day, I just had this thing uh, with three chords. I don't know. I was always working on something that had three or four chords in a verse, usually. Something simple, you know. And um, I took it to, a, to the studio. Um, I took those chords to the studio and uh, the drummers there and uh, Jimmy. And it was one of the times I was actually early at the studio <laughs> getting to, to rehearsal. This is before we were signed. This is just right. when we were just, yeah. And um, Wally and uh, Rich wasn't even there. And Jimmy started banging out a uh, beat, and I started playing those chords, and it worked. And um, he started singing something on it, a melody, and goes out. Oh, I think we got some here. And then uh, those two guys came in, and we we uh, had had that whole thing. I mean, just kind of laid into it. I, and eventually, somehow along the way, I suggested the the haze because of a uh, Latin loopy Lou from Mitch Ryder had haze in it. And the Yardbirds had haze in there, uh, over under sideways down. Yep. And, um, and then Chuck Berry had the, uh, huh. Hey, well, yeah. Living in the USA, you know, yep. like that kind of thing going on. So it's a bits and pieces of just influences. It's not, you know, it's not like an out and out, like trying to be somebody else or anything. It's just inspired rock and roll and uh, a conglomeration of influences. Um, yeah, it's just a we, great... Uh, had a couple, I had a couple chords for the middle part. Wally said, what about this chord? He threw in his one chord and played the harp. And, um, you know, it was magic in the studio. I mean, we, we played it for two years, I think, two or three years, and Jimmy was still writing lyrics for it. He was singing the verse. Instead of on the word is now, it was on the opposite beat. But that's what a producer does. It got straightened out and... Uh, the, the rest is history. I yeah, guess. It's, it's just a classic track. Yeah. Now, now you mentioned Alice Cooper in passing. Uh, for a while, you had uh, Johnny B. Bandanet Bandajek uh, in there, and he, of course, played on Alice Cooper's albums. Um, I always love my my six degrees of separations. Yeah. You know, Johnny. Yeah. John, I'm trying to think what album Johnny was on. Um, probably Lace and Whiskey or something like that. Anyway, um, listen, Nash, on, that's Johnny. That's Johnny Bandajek. Yep. He's an uh, incredible Detroit drummer, yep. 15, 16 years old, and Mitch Ryder, and move, they move to New York, they go to New York, they, they do uh, they do Devil with a Blue Dress, and they had four songs before that, uh, Jenny Take a Ride, they move to New York, they're doing a residency at the Peppermint Lounge, I think, or somewhere, and they're meeting everybody, I mean, like Hendrix, everybody is there in an early event of 63, 4, 5, 6, 3, 4, 5, even earlier, and... Uh, those are another, uh, like Latin Luke Blues, two chords, two chords. Those are the kind of songs that was drawing me to, to writing and, and guitar. And uh, 
Johnny played on um, Mitch Ryder with Mitch Ryder, and then he was with uh, well, he did. Uh, I think it was with uh, he did Free Ride, one of the songs on uh, Edgar Winter band. It was Free Ride or another song, and um, and then he moved over to Alice Cooper. He was with Alice Cooper on two albums, I think Billion Dollar Babies or one after that. Uh, I have to look that up. Um, yeah, so he's on like two records with Alice Cooper. You go to, down the list, he's on a lot of records. He was in Mick Rodder in Detroit. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, it's, so, I'm, yeah. I'm, try, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, Alice Cooper discography because I, I've, I've interviewed uh, Johnny before. Um, yeah. Just trying to see which ones he was on. Wonderful yeah. player. Yeah, he was with us. He recorded on... Uh, 6149. 6149, he did a couple songs, three songs, two or three songs on there. Yep. Wonderful drummer, great guy, pure rock and roll cat. Yeah, and another wonderful drummer that you had uh, for for a short period of time also was Clem Burke of Blondie, who, yeah, you know, really helped define that early 80s sound and scene with, you know, Rapture and, and, and what Blondie was doing. Uh, just a great, uh, skilled uh, drummer. Yeah. So, you know, you've got some good guys. Now, uh, yeah. National Breakout comes out, and it does okay, and then Strictly Personal comes out. It does meh, okay, but then the the big one, In the Heat, or In Heat, sorry, In Heat. Yeah, 6149 came out uh, late uh, in the 90s. Yeah, and uh, In Heat came out in uh, 84, 83, 84. Now, and now that, that's... Go ahead. Yeah, we uh, we recorded it. Uh, I think in the uh, either in the fall or January, February of eighty three. It was eighty three and came out in eighty four. I think if I remember correctly. Yes, and it yeah. but it has you know talking in your left, sleep. Sorry, I left the band for strictly personal. I was out. Yeah, uh, you know, just uh, we weren't getting along on the look and the direction, and we were just forced into the studio on the second record. That kind of tore a wound, made a wound within personnel. You know, just going out and playing new songs when we should be playing the first album. We were forced into the studio. We forced meaning the label suggested and the management suggested we go in the studio and do the second album way before we did Europe. We didn't tour Europe yet. Yeah, and way before so, you were ready. And 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 there is something to, to be said for the look because you know by strictly personal. Right the look that they had and you weren't part of the band obviously but the, yeah the look was sort of like everybody dressed in pink and pink suits yeah. and yeah. and yeah. i was yeah it just that you know you look at what the knack was doing you look at you know what ozzy osbourne was doing and everything that was going around it, it just seemed like pink suits and ties yep. was probably yeah. not a good way to sell a band that you know, I was, but you well, weren't there well, that, that's, I guess that's my point. I mean, it's, you know, that's water on the bridge and all that. And, uh, uh, but I, you know, I'm watching, you know, uh, the jam and the sex pistols and flaming groovies and, right, correct. you know, and, and all these hard, harder rock top bands. And I, I didn't really want to continue the same thing over and over again. And musically, that's fine. You can always write, I can always write, come up with songs and, but, you know, and it's just, uh, the pressure of, I guess, well, pressure i that's i don't know if you want to call it pressure because it's music but uh we had to get in and, and come up with an album uh they suggested because the other record was dropping off the charts slowly and um management suggested it and we didn't we just wanted to play the music and we didn't want to get involved in the 
telling them what we should do or shouldn't do, uh, putting out record-wise. And I had to come up with uh, 12 songs or more for an album in a few months. And we did it, but then I think we suffered the consequences of all that, that, that the feeling of it, to get it re- the, to living through it. Yeah. Through it. And it just created a chasm and whatever, you know, things, things happen. And, and I, I was asking the band after a strictly pers- personal flopped. And um, I'm being a main songwriter, the main, a lot of times I come up with the, the initial songs, parts, and, and then I'll pass it. I'll say, well, yeah, what about this? Check this out, you know. And he'll take it and add a melody to it. But, uh, you know, you know, it's, uh, it came back in and I had a, some fresh blood back in the band and uh, fresh ideas and things were happening in uh, England at the time, XTC and uh, was coming out and uh, without, what, who else? With the XTC and all those kind of dance, pop, hard, soul, soul records were coming out. You know, Spano Ballet, the new romantic things. Uh, Duran Duran was coming uh, through. Yeah, Duran Duran was just coming out, right? And uh, yep. the one that did... Uh, Black coffee in bed. Uh, black coffee. Uh, yeah. Is, is that is that uh, Gino Vanelli? No, that's about black cars. No, no I'll think of it. Anyway, but but in heat comes out and and you're back on the charts. One in a million, which is a great song, goes up to number thirty-seven. Talking in your sleep, which is uh, by far uh, one of my favorite songs of the eighties, uh, goes to number three. And yep. it's amazing to me because, you know, I'll, I'll go sometimes a year or two years without hearing it and it'll pop on on Sirius or I'll, I'll you know, I'll put it up on Spotify. Yeah, exactly. whatever. And I can sing the, the words to it as if I had been listening to it every day of my life. It's 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 just such a memorable song. Right. And I'm sorry about that earworm. <laughs> oh, I know. But I love it. I, I, I mean, I'm singing it into my head right now. So it's, so it's great. But. But just talk to me about that album, and of course you coming back, and of course changing roles because you went from guitarist, yeah. lead guitarist to now you're playing bass. Um, well, talk to me about that whole coming back and changing the roles, and the, the album's success, and and of course in heat right after strictly business does great, and so does it yeah, give you a little true. bit of a hey uh, yeah. Wally well, look at yeah. that <laughs> well it still takes a band it still takes a band it right. still takes a band I mean I was influenced by a lot of straight ahead guitar players in the 60s Fred Sonic Smith from the MC5 Wayne Kramer uh, Ron Ashton from the Stooges and then all the guys from uh, Alice Cooper and uh, Dick Wagner from the Frost in Detroit and anyway uh, Dick Wagner by the way um a good friend of mine um, passed away not oh, really? too long ago. Yeah, I love Dick, and I would talk to Dick all the time. Um, he even he even cut a song for me for a, a tribute album I did. He did every um, every time I look at you a Kiss cover that he had. He was great. They you know, were kind of like a Beatles of Detroit area of the six late sixties rock. You know, you throw in a little bit of the, yeah. the peace and love vibe, and his songs were really good. I mean. Uh, but then what he did with Lou Reed and then what he did with Alice Cooper, Welcome to My Nightmare, I mean, yeah. hello, that, that is, yeah. that is, I don't want to call it classic rock, but that is rock that yeah. is just classic at a, at a top level. I mean, it's next yeah, level. If you, yeah, if you read, uh, if you read uh, books by uh, Lou Reed and uh, articles and interviews, his interviews are hilarious. He hates interviews or he hates yeah. questions. Yeah. But, uh, he, yeah, he... I could see how Dick Wagner fits in there with that sound. 
some people like blow that record off, but Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter, who was in Mitch Ryder in Detroit with Johnny B. Yep. Uh, they both, the tandem, if you listen to Rock and Roll Animal, the guitar was incredible, guitar was incredible. Oh, absolutely. And then, of course, you know, Steve and and Dick went and did Alice Cooper, and then they, they, they ghosted on an Aerosmith album, they ghosted on a Kiss album. Those two guys together... We knew that in Detroit. I mean, uh, it was always like kind of a hidden thing. Yeah. But uh, we could tell uh, with, the, with, the, uh, with Aerosmith, that's what always, always got me about Aerosmith, is the fact that I knew that Steve Hunter was on there playing, playing that stuff. Yep. You know? Oh, yeah. And, now I know why. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Steve is yeah. still, still out there. He's um, currently working on a like, solo album, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Return to Alice... When did he return to Alice? He returned to Alice, I guess, somewhere around 2011, 2012. Did yeah. about a year with him and then had to come off the road again. But that tandem, I mean, that's right up there with, you know, uh, the Thin Lizzy guys. It's, he, they're right yeah. up there with, you know, Aerosmith, Joe Perry, and Brad Whitford. That is a, that is a killer tandem. Well, if you go back, if people can go back on, on, on their phone or on I, I, on the uh, Internet and get the Frost live album, that's Dick Wagner. And then from that you go to Mitch Ryder Detroit, and and the band Detroit. Then that's uh, that's Steve Hunter, and then you put the two get together, and they're on the Aerosmith and uh, the Alice Cooper stuff. It's just incredible guitar work, great, great oh. stuff. Yeah. Out of Michigan once again. My you know, I have, I have a thing on my uh, Facebook is we love Detroit guitar players. You know why we basically why we love the attitude yeah. and energy. Oh yeah. But, you know, uh, back to back to uh, uh, talking in your sleep. I, I played bass uh, in high school after I learned guitar. Um, uh, Jimmy, the drummer, I met him in six, uh, eighth, ninth grade, and they needed a bass player. And I was playing guitar with another band in high school, and um, I just started jam with them. We played high school dances and stuff. Uh, and you'd open for bands like uh, Bob Seger would play a high school, and you'd be one of the bands opening, and or or Ted Nugent or uh, Savage Grace or the Frost, SRC. All these bands were playing like Catholic school dances, and we'd be opening for them, our little bands. And uh, but I was playing bass, uh, and then uh, I went. I, I was always playing guitar, so I, well, I did that. And the band Romantics came together. Uh, the idea for the Romantics was. I saw the melody maker. I remember this incredibly. Uh, saw the cover of it was either cover or inside sleeve of a melody maker magazine was Paul Weller of the Jam with his white and black shoes and his skinny pants and his skinny tie. And then the Flaming Groovies album came out, Take Some Action with uh, Dave Edmonds producing. And I went over to Marino's Jimmy's house and then stole, I just said, "Man, we can do this. I can play it. I can write this stuff. This is the stuff I grew up on." And I wasn't planning on playing guitar. I was probably play bass. I was just going to write songs. And we asked numerous guitar players in Detroit. Uh, they wanted to join. And most of them were into doing like longer. Well, I want to put this nicely because I'm not deriding it. Uh, they were into playing Led Zeppelin and um, more like anthem rock, you know, more uh, arena rock stuff. And we were talking, we were getting into the basics, raw, simple rock and roll. And along the lines of Chuck Berry and George Harrison and guitar playing and and none of them really wanted to do it so I was I just was forced into the spot <laughs> but, but I welcomed it I welcomed it so anyway that's how I ended up back on guitar 
And then when uh, In Heat happened, um, they asked me to come back. I agreed. I had been working a little bit in the studio. Um, but I came back on bass with the, with, the, with the thought of still working guitar, which I did, and writing. Um, and I had that bass line. I had the talking in your sleep bass line, the, the verse bass line. Um, and it's basically like a Motown influence thing and um, that kind of thing, Motown or Philly or whatever you want to call it, soul thing. And uh, then we were in the studio and we had finished all the tracks for uh, all the tracks that we we're going to release for uh, in Heat. And we had that one last thing. And we're going, what should we do? We need one more song. And um, the producer Pete Sully goes, uh, well, what about that one thing you had on bass? And uh, so he started messing with it. And I go, here's a verse. And then we uh, we pulled the piano, electric piano, into the studio in the control room. And we all sat around and just said, well, how are we going to get this? How are we going to adapt this? So we came up with a, a turnaround bridge at the end of the verse, and then we came up with a chorus, and, they, and then we all kind of like chipped in for the for the, the words, the, the title, and the chorus. So it's kind of a group out. It was a group effort in the end, but influenced by my baseline. So yeah, good. Yeah, it's it a great fun. song, and and one in a million. And um, well, we'll touch on this real quick. But then after after in heat, there was all kinds of shenanigans with your management or, or oh boy. Yeah. lawsuits and all this, which, which is what kept the band uh, from recording and, and being a band, basically. Um, yeah. Just, if you can, you know, sum that up, because I don't want to start opening up old wounds and have you go on for, for half an hour on, on, on that, but it... No, that's it, all right. It, I, but I, it was I, terrible, basically. Well, yeah, uh, usually what happens, if you're, in, if you're getting sued or you're suing somebody or something like that is happening, a record label is not really going to get in between at all and start releasing records when they don't know what's going to happen with it. They want to know that their share, their money, and your money is going to be coming to you. They don't really want to deal with you. So we were out of, we were doing independent stuff, EP and EP here, a uh, single there, uh, a full-on record, 6149, uh, came out in the 90, 93-4, 2003-4, yeah, two, and, uh, yeah uh, I, I have it yeah. listed as 2003 for uh, 61. It, it turned out to be a lawsuit that lasted for about 10 years. And, you know, that's that's happened again after that. But, um, you know, I'm not going to go into all that. So we've been in some form of uh, litigation uh, probably close to 20 years of all this, all this time. <laughs> in yeah. some form or another. Yeah, we it's, added it's, all up. And that, that's what I think, uh, just to sort of put a cap on all of it, is is what makes it remarkable because through all of this nonsense, you still yeah. managed to, to stay focused. You still managed to uh, go out on tour with, you know, Loverboy and Rick Springfield and, and have yeah. these big hits and be in all these movies and TV shows and video games. I mean, the songs are ubiquitous and, and, and they stand the test of time and, and you haven't lost focus. You, you, you've gone through okay. it all. So 40 years, yeah. um, you know, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, Thanks, Mitch. And, uh, the thing is, uh, you see it. You see it over and over again. I mean, look, look at Alice Cooper still around. Ted Nugent, regardless of what you feel or how you, if you like it or not, Ted Nugent still around. And, and uh, uh, I mean, Alice Cooper and uh, Bob Seger and guys from the MC5 and guys, I, other guys in Detroit. It's well, Grand Funk Railroad is still doing it. Yep, it's uh, a working class town, and we. Huh? Uh, it's like just like 
it's a work ethic. I think it's a work ethic. No matter how much partying you did, if you lived through it, uh, you know, or if you didn't do that, um, we're still healthy enough to, and some brain cells, whatever, you know, we're still here and we still have the, the, the energy to do it. And, um, and people are kind of surprised when we come on stage and with the attitude and the attack and the energy is still like, you know, the first few years, you know, the first years of our band. We still do that. It's still like that. It's, uh, it, you know, it comes off of pop, really pop music on the radio a lot of times. But, man, the attitude and the raw energy from Detroit. We grew up working in factories. I, you know, I worked in a shop to buy my first guitar factory. Uh, and, you know, that kind of... I don't even think people know that that word means anymore <laughs> or the ethic of it. No. It, it was something that... Uh, was always there that you could always every summer you could uh you could uh go work in a shop or factory then quit and go back go back to high school and you you know you go to high school finish and then you go back in spring you go to another shop and work in a factory that made parts for cars and those were all gone in the 90s completely they were gone completely gone the city yep. went oh yeah the, level down yeah it d- was, detroit's been in in a in tailspin for for years and hopefully hopefully uh, it'll get back, and of course, this year the the Red Wings didn't make the playoffs. So, no. <laughs> come no. on. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's many uh, towns in that area that are in that kind of we're in that kind of situation. We all worked off one one another. Steel in Pennsylvania, of course, you know, and then uh, you know you've got coal mines. All the, all the, yeah. You know, everything is all connected, interconnected. Is what I'm trying to say in that in that business, and they all went away. It all went away, and. You know, you first you had the gas crunch in seventies, and then it drops to a new low in the eighties, seventies, eighties, and nineties. Now it's back. Detroit is going back. I mean, it is. I mean, there's so many restaurants and activities going on downtown. The Pistons uh, are moving back downtown. Uh, the Lions moved back downtown. Uh, Red Wings are getting a new arena, and yep. it, it's really happening. Yeah, it is really happening. I just hope that they don't lose any of the raw earthiness of the, of the, the attitude, you know, now, I don't think they will. No, nah, I don't think so either. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, uh, Detroit, even though kiss is not from Detroit, uh, Detroit gave them their big, uh, push that's to right. start them off. And they've been around for 40 years, 40 plus years. So, uh, that city, yeah. man, epicenter of a lot of great rock and roll. And that cannot be forgotten. Can never be a forgotten. Lot. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, exactly. You said it. <laughs> yep, Mike. And great. we're not stopped. We're not stopped, and uh, we're working on this thing. We're, we're, I mean, it, it, push comes to shove, this thing's gonna come out, and uh, we'll get a new uh, song or two coming up in the next few months, and then a full-on. Um, it's uh, an LP of covers and our music, and then the next one will be all our music. The next one will be all new tunes. So that that'll be next. Um, I've got stuff now. Wally got stuff. We we just got to come together and. Uh, flesh out what songs we're going to use and how we're going to do it. Yeah, and I, I very much yeah. look forward to that. I always look forward to new music. And, of course, uh, since Poison covered uh, the Romantics, maybe you could uh, cover a Poison <laughs> song. Well, you know, Poison did it, and we've got yeah. uh, five, seconds, five Seconds of Summer, a young young band, 19, 19 years old, 20 years old, a young uh, yeah. boy, rock and roll boy band, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yep. Yeah. My, my niece, uh, for my brother uh he calls me and tells me my uh, my daughter is uh telling me about this group that's uh playing uh tiger stadium and uh, they do your song and this was like five years ago 
And I go, what? And they were, they were, they were selling out stadiums, selling out stadiums. Through, and the last song in their sets, What I Like About You. Oh, yeah, I know about so them. That, I have a daughter who's uh, turning 14 this year, and I had to get her tickets to, to see one of those shows. So uh, very yeah, aware so, of them. And uh, so it's, we're hoping, it's cool. We're hoping to get... We're hoping to get paid by them soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's that, that's that, that's always the catch. It's getting paid, um, Mike. <laughs> but, I, it, um, yeah. but, it's, uh, but you know, you have the Donnas. The Donnas did what I like about you and the cat from Texas, Michael Maroney or Michael, whatever his name. I can't think of his name. So there's been numerous bands that's done it, but you know, good songs are good songs. Yeah, that, that and, and that's fun. the bottom line. Uh, great pleasure today. Um, Thank you, Mitch. It took a while to get us uh, on the phone together because of different circumstances, but we got it done, and it sounded great, and uh, just thank you. And uh, thank you for all those great music, for, for all that great music over the years. Great. Well, we'll stay in touch, and, um, you know, this stuff will be coming out, and we'll have to talk again. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and hopefully you'll be somewhere in, in like a four- or five-hour driving radius from Montreal, and I can come down and see a show. Boy, I mean... Y- you, Night Ranger, and, and um, Rick Springfield would be a summer night that I could not forget. So ho- hopefully something like that will happen soon. Well, we'll do, we'll do another rock talk, and I'm sure it'll still be around. We'll do another rock talk, and uh, once we get this thing out, and we'll probably be on the road somewhere, and I'll call you. I will call. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Thank you. Have a good one. I really appreciate it, and uh, good, good, good at you for everything you do. Thank you, and uh, thank Let's you for, you for what you do. Bye-bye hey. now. Thanks, man. Cheers. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue public works, other first responders, and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue, repair, and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.